Now, in the Second World War, there was a brief resurgence of an interest in Christianity and in the church. There are no atheists in foxholes. And when the bombs were raining down on London during the Brits and Liverpool and Manchester and all those great industrial cities, as you know, C.S. Lewis was addressing the people on the BBC and giving his wartime talks and so forth. And so there was a brief resurgence of religion during the Second World War, but it dropped off precipitously again in the post-war years. So we see a drop-off of religion. The church is really being questioned in terms of its legitimacy, its place in society. Really, the latter part of the 20th century were dark days for Christianity in Europe. And many nations began to move in a secular direction during the 50s and the 60s. That was not the case here in America. In the post-war era, when I say post-war, I mean post-World War II era, there was a tremendous surge in American Christianity. A tremendous surge in American Christianity. All denominations, all the Protestant mainline denominations grew exponentially during this time period. It was the greatest period for Anglicanism in North America in terms of membership, from 1965 until 1980. In 1965, the Episcopal Church had a membership of 3.6 million members. Now, that was still made it a small denomination by comparison with some of the others, the Methodists and the Baptists in particular. They were the two largest Protestant denominations in America in the 1950s. But all denominations were growing. The Episcopal Church was growing exponentially as well. But in 1965, everything began to change. Now bear in mind that in the 1940s, the 1950s, <laughs> this is the word of the Lord. <laughs> bear in mind that in the 1940s and in the 1950s in America, even though things had fallen on hard times in Europe, things were going great guns here. The church was well respected. Part of that was due to the fact that this was the Cold War era. This was the Cold War era. And now we had a new enemy. America had made the world safe for democracy, but now we had this new era and there was a new threat, a former ally turned enemy, and that of course was Russia. And Russia was what? Russia was communistic and atheistic, which meant that America needed to be just the opposite. We needed to be godly and democratic. And so the church really began to grow exponentially at this point. Incidentally, it was in the 1950s that American flags first appeared in churches. They had not appeared in American churches up to that point. Here's the second thing. This was the first time that hymnals in the 1940s and the 1950s began to have patriotic songs like the Star Spangled Banner. That had never existed in American hymnals up to this point. So one of the things that you see happening here is something that had happened in Europe by means of the state church. There was a combination of religion and patriotism. That's going to have a profound impact on Christianity in America. But in the 1940s and the 1950s, the Episcopal Church in particular, even though it was a small denomination, exercised a tremendous amount of influence and power. More members of Congress and more presidents of the United States have been Episcopalians than any other denomination up through the 1980s. In spite of the fact that we were one of the smallest. In fact, in 1947, Hollywood 
put out a holiday film that became a classic that had as its main character an Episcopal bishop. The movie starred two, well, three great Hollywood legends. You know what the movie is? Yeah, bishop's wife. The Bishop's Wife, that's exactly right. And it's based upon the life loosely of the Episcopal Bishop of New York. So we were the respected denomination. If you're going to depict the church, and the church was always depicted in a positive light in those days, think about that today, you're going to depict the Episcopal Church. So the Episcopal Church, all denominations were growing. But as I said, from about 1980 to 2021, there was a precipitous decline. That decline started in 1965 with a decrease from 3.6 million to 3 million members. And then from 1980 to 2021, the Episcopal Church decreased from 3 million members to 1.5 million. What accounts for that tremendous loss? Now, there are a whole lot of factors. I'm giving you just a brief analysis of what I think really happened. But I think for us, what had happened in Europe back in, started in 1918 and picked up speed in 1946, happened to us in the 1960s. Now, what happened in the 1960s here in America? Again, we flourished. The 20th century was the American century. Happy days were here again when Ike was in the White House in the 1950s. But what happened in the 1960s? Well, there was a great deal of turmoil. Every institution in America was affected by the 1960s and what was happening in the 1960s. Three movements in particular in the 1960s, of course, one, of course, was the Vietnam War. Our response to the Vietnam War, or the majority response of a great many people at home to the Vietnam War, was very comparable to what people felt about World War I in Europe. This is what happens to a nation. We get involved in all of these wars, war after war. 1918 was supposed to be the war to end all wars. 1938, what happened? Germany ruled into Poland. 20 years later. And then we thought World War II, everybody would learn the lesson. We dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Everybody thought we'd learn the lesson. 1950s, we're in Korea. In the 1960s, we're in Vietnam. And many people are questioning, where does it all stop? So you have the Vietnam War. That was a major influence on American Christianity. The second one was everything that was happening in the South in terms of integration. That was also a major factor in the 1960s. And of course, a new war, brinksmanship, this was the Cold War era. So the 1960s, any way you look at it, some of you lived through those period, you know it was a period of great upheaval, a period of great turmoil. Some of you served in the Vietnam War, so you know what this was like. This was a time of great consternation in the United States especially. All of a sudden, we're catching up to Europe. And the old idea that America was godly and that America would smite the world right really began to be questioned. And it began to be questioned by society, and it began to be questioned in the church. So here is where I'm going to bring you sort of up to speed with where I think we are. In the 1960s, there were members of the Episcopal Church 
who really bought into what was happening in society and who really began to believe that American Christianity had to change if it was going to have any place at the table in the years to come. A great deal of skepticism and questioning occurred. And it all centered around one man in particular. If I have to say this was the turning point for the American Episcopal Church, it had to do with this man. Anybody know who I'm going to put up on the screen? No, not Spong. Spong came much later. It's this man. He's the Bishop of California, former Dean of St. John the Divine in New York City, a former lawyer, high-powered lawyer turned clergyman. And that is Bishop James Pike. Pike was um, an extraordinary individual in many ways. He started off as an orthodox man, wrote a number of articles and pamphlets and books for the church teaching series. But he bought into the whole movements of the 1960s. Um, everything that was out there that was on the what we would call the liberal or leftist fringe, Bishop Pike bought into. And he became, in the minds of many people, a prophetic witness. In many ways, he was a pathetic witness. He lived a very tragic life. Uh, first of all, he suffered from severe alcoholism. Now, remember, this is the 1960s. In addition to all of that, um, he was twice divorced. So you can just imagine what that was like in the 1960s. That is not uncommon today. It was very uncommon in the 1960s, especially for a clergyman, and in particular for a bishop of the church. His son got involved in the drug culture. Uh, the bishop had neglected his children. He was always out speaking about the Vietnam War. He was speaking about integration. He was speaking about something. His family was very much neglected. His, sons got, his son got involved in the drug culture and ultimately committed suicide. And the bishop was so devastated by that that when he was the bishop of California, he actually, he and his wife, hired someone to hold a seance in the Episcopal residence in the hopes of somehow contacting his dead son. Now understand that this is a bishop of the Episcopal church who is doing this. He is a high profile, well-known bishop. This is not the Bishop of Podunk. This is the Bishop of California, the former dean of the most distinguished cathedral in the country, St. John the Divine in New York City. And not only is he doing these sorts of things, he's beginning to question some of the central tenets of the Christian faith. He questions the virginity of Mary, the virgin birth. He challenges a belief in the Holy Scriptures. He describes in 1965 in a book entitled Time for Christian Candor, he describes the doctrine of the Trinity as excess luggage that the church would do well to jettison. He doesn't believe in the divinity of Christ. He doesn't believe in the existence of the Holy Spirit. And he believes that all ways, as long as you're faithful, are ways to God, regardless of what Jesus said in John chapter 14. And he's the Bishop of California, the chief pastor. Now, what happens, and this took some doing even in that day, in 1966, he was charged with heresy. Eleven bishops of the House of Bishops, and by the way, in the Episcopal Church, the only way for a bishop to be disciplined is by his peers. 
So it took 11 bishops to bring charges against Bishop Pike, charges of heresy for having abandoned the faith. There was no question about the fact that he'd done that. There were several charges brought against him. I've already mentioned them. The denial of the Trinity, denial of the Holy Spirit, denial of the centrality of Christ for salvation, a denial of the incarnation and the atonement, and a denial or a failure to abide by the Lambeth Chicago quadrilateral. The House of Bishops failed to find him guilty. Instead, what they decided to do was to opt for censure rather than discipline. The argument being that the worst thing that could exist, the worst heresy in the eyes of the Episcopal Church by the 1960s was division. Not false teaching, but division. And so Bishop Pike went free. Now, a year later, he resigned his see. But I'm going to be honest with you. Bishop Pike is a tragic figure in my mind. The Episcopal Church, by failing to discipline him, and there's a difference between discipline and punishment. The scripture says the Lord disciplines those he loves. You discipline your children. So what? So that they become responsible citizens and adult men and women. Now, sometimes that discipline is painful, but it's not meant so much as punishment to tear them down as it is to what? Build them up. It's meant to be constructive, not destructive. And that's what discipline is meant to be in the church. But they failed to discipline Bishop Pike. They failed to say, no, you cannot be a bishop of the church and continue to teach these things. They failed to bring him back in line. And as a consequence, they basically patted him on the head and sent him out to play in the traffic. And he had a very tragic end. At this point, having lost his son, having been censured by the House of Bishops, having been through multiple marriages, suffering, as I said, from alcoholism, he really didn't know what he believed, if he believed in anything. And so the story goes that he went off to the Holy Land in the hopes of doing some research on a book about the historic Jesus, the, 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 the human Jesus. And while he and his wife were traveling through the Sinai Peninsula, their car ran out of gas. The bishop got up and went looking for some help, and he was not heard again, from again. His wife eventually was left there for a day in the desert. She eventually got out of the car and wandered, eventually found her way to an Israeli base, military base. A search was started for Bishop Pike, and his bloated and corrupted body was eventually found in a dried-out gulch. A wadi is what they call it in the Middle East. He had fallen down into a canyon, and he had died from exposure. A tragic end to a figure who at one point was on the cover of Time magazine. Now, I tell you all of that because I think that was a turning point in the life of the Episcopal Church. That was the point of no return. When a bishop could teach things that were absolutely contrary to the faith. Not just contrary to the Bible, but contrary to the creeds. Contrary to the teaching of the Book of Common Prayer, to the 39 articles. A bishop could do that and no longer be disciplined for it. What that said was that in the Episcopal Church, there was no such thing as heresy anymore. And that would eventually open the door to the man that you all are more familiar with. And that is the Bishop of Newark, John Shelby 
Spong. Spong appeared on the scene really in the 1970s and the 1980s, and he began to question many of the same things that Bishop Pike had questioned. The problem was everybody sort of viewed Pike as a tragic figure. You know, he had a tragic life, loss of his son. Nobody wanted to beat the man when he was down. So it was sort of just, you know, he's an anomaly. But what they had done is they had opened the door. And in came John Shelby Spong, the Bishop of Newark. And Spong began to question all of the things that Pike had questioned. And he wasn't a tragic figure. He was a very eloquent figure. I actually met Bishop Spong when I was at Virginia Theological Seminary. I didn't agree with anything that he said. He engaged in a debate with the Bishop of Central Florida at the time, John Howe. And I knew John Howe as well, and John Howe was a great man. But I'll be honest with you, in terms of personality, Spong was very attractive. He's a very charismatic individual. But he began to write a whole series of books. One was called Born of a Woman. A bishop rethinks the virgin birth and the treatment of women by a male-dominated church. In that book, he denied the belief in the virgin birth, a belief in the incarnation. Then he came out with a book called The Sins of Scripture. Now, just the titles should tell you a great deal. He then published a book called Rescuing the Bible from Fundamentalism. And he came out with a book with, entitled Why Christianity must change or die. And when he meant change, he meant jettison all of those things that we stand and recite in the words of the creed immediately following the sermon. Christianity has to change or it's going to die. And of course, Bishop Spong became a very eloquent witness for the extremist revisionist position in the Episcopal Church during the 1980s and the 1990s. He was never brought to trial. He was never disciplined in any way whatsoever. He was censured as well. He was censured for his teaching by the House of Bishops. And he was censured at the same time as another bishop. They were censured simultaneously. You want to know who the other bishop was who was censured along with Bishop Pike? Or along with Bishop Spong? Take a guess. That's right. It was Bishop Fitzallison was censured along with Bishop Spong. And why? Not for failing to teach heresy or for, for teaching heresy, but because he was divisive in his defense of the gospel. So this is where we were in the Episcopal Church in the 1980s and the 1990s. And if you want to know the truth, that brings us up to where we are today. That's really how we got to where we are today. It all started in the 1960s. The door was opened with Bishop Pike. There was no discipline of subsequent bishops like Bishop Spong. And that's how we ended up where we are today. There are those on the other side who will tell you it's all about human sexuality. That we've got sex on the brain. Which, by the way, is an odd place to have it. <laughs> But I will say this much to you. That is not the issue. That is not the issue. The issue, as has been seen over the course of the past 40, 50, 60 years, the real issue that is facing the Episcopal Church and Anglicanism in North America 
is a question of authority. What is the authority for the life of the church? In the Episcopal Church, in the 1990s and into 2000, the General Convention now became the ultimate authority for the life of the church. An elected body which votes on what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. No longer the Bible, the creeds. You can believe almost anything in the American Episcopal Church by the dawn of the 21st century. The worst sin in the world is not to deny the faith, but to cause division in the life of the church. In other words, there's no good reason to separate. There's no good reason to separate. And if you do separate, you will be punished for it. So that's where we are, which brings us then to the Diocese of South Carolina. The American scene, Anglicanism and schism. So what happened here in South Carolina? Well, it had been happening in other places, but it really happened, as far as we're concerned, here just a few years ago. The Diocese of South Carolina, as most of you know, was established in 1785. All right. That, incidentally, is years before the Episcopal Church ever came into existence. Now, there is a sense in which St. Philip's, as you know, was established in 1680, so we had existed long before the Episcopal Church and long before the diocese had existed. Actually, we were part of the Diocese of London. Following the American Revolution, the American Episcopal Church, we've already talked about this, was organized the Diocese of South Carolina in 1785, the Episcopal Church around 1801, 1802. So we were one of the founding dioceses of the Episcopal Church, one of the nine original dioceses. If you look at an Episcopal flag, you'll notice that it has a blue field up in the corner, white fly, and then the red cross of St. George. The red cross represents what? England. The blue field has, white, has a cross, an X-shaped cross in the form of St. Andrew's cross, representing Scotland because our first bishop, Samuel Seabury, came from Scotland. But that cross is formed by nine small crosslets, representing the nine founding dioceses of the Episcopal Church, one of which was the Diocese of South Carolina. Originally, the Diocese of South Carolina composed the entire state of South Carolina. But in 1922, the diocese and the church were growing so fast that the convention decided to form a second diocese. And in 1922, the Diocese of Upper South Carolina was formed with the see being in Columbia, Trinity Cathedral. In the 1990s through 2012, the Diocese of South Carolina was the only diocese in the entire Episcopal Church and there were about 110 dioceses at that point. We were the only diocese in the Episcopal Church that was growing faster than its demographics. In other words, you can't say, well, it was all those Yankees moving down to the coast. We were actually growing faster than our demographics. We were the only diocese in the Episcopal Church that was doing so. But we also realized that we were walking out of step with the Episcopal Church at large. Now, if you've been raised in the Diocese of South Carolina, and this is your exposure to the Episcopal Church, you may not have been aware of what was happening in other parts of the Episcopal Church. You've been living to some degree in a protective bubble. But we were out of step 
with the rest of the Episcopal Church or the vast majority of the Episcopal Church. On October 2nd, 2012, the Standing Committee passed a series of resolutions to protect us against uncanonical incursions into the diocese. What that means is that it was discovered that the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Catherine Jefford Shorey, had hired an attorney to investigate Bishop Lawrence. Now understand that we were the Episcopal Church in South Carolina. So that happened on October 2nd, 2012. On October 15th, 2012, Bishop Mark Lawrence was accused of abandoning the teaching of the church. Now, that's ironic given the fact that he believed everything that the church taught. But when they meant the abandonment of the church, what they meant was the abandonment of the communion of the church. He was being divisive. On November 17, 2012, the special convention affirmed the previous South Carolina resolutions and affirmed disassociation from the Episcopal Church and amended our diocesan constitution. Now, what now? We, we, we left. Why did we leave? Well, we left for this reason. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, we all want progress. But if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. Bishop J.C. Ryle was the Bishop of Liverpool, put it this way. He said, men ought to tolerate much. I say it confidently. Men ought to tolerate and put up with much before they think of separating and dividing and leaving one church for another. It is a step which nothing but the deliberate teaching of false doctrine can, doctrine can really justify. It is a step that should never be taken without much consideration, much waiting, and much prayer. Article number 20, Book of Common Prayer. The church hath power to decree rites, of rites and ceremonies and authority and controversies of faith and yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. Wherefore, although the church may be a witness and a keeper of holy writ, yet as it ought not to decree anything against the same, so besides the same ought it not to enforce anything to be believed for necessity of salvation. Folks, when all is said and done, that is why we departed from the Episcopal Church. Now, was sexuality an issue? It was a presenting issue. There's no question about that. As most of you know, um, there was a bishop back in the 1990s who was elected the Bishop of New Hampshire. His name was Gene Robinson. He was a gay man living in a partnered relationship that was clearly contrary to the teaching of Scripture. It was also contrary to the canons of the Episcopal Church. He was brought up on charges of having abandoned the faith, the very thing that Bishop Lawrence would eventually be accused of, and the church found him innocent. Again, the only heresy being schism. That's the worst thing in the world. If you have to sacrifice the faith or unity, sacrifice the faith, but not the unity of the church. When the Diocese of South Carolina objected to the election of Gene Robinson as Bishop of New Hampshire, we were politely told that we didn't have to elect a Gene Robinson, that was our business, but the people of New Hampshire had a right to elect whoever they wanted. 
We quickly discovered, however, that what was sauce for the goose was not sauce for the gander when Bishop Lawrence was elected because he was elected and did not receive the consents of the majority of standing committees in the Episcopal Church. Now, eventually, we went through this a second time, and he got elected. But they didn't trust him, and they began to investigate him. And why? Because he was teaching something contrary to the faith? No. He can stand up and say the creed without crossing his fingers. He believes everything. But because he believes the faith once delivered to the saints, he's regarded as a danger. And eventually he was removed. And that's really why we're here. Doesn't really have to do about sex or anything else like that. People want to paint us in that light because, quite frankly, that's what everybody's interested in in the culture today. But the real issue for the Diocese of South Carolina, for the Diocese of Pittsburgh, for the Diocese of Fort Worth, for a number of these dioceses that felt the need to abandon the Episcopal Church, it was because we had to be loyal to the faith. And we believe that if a choice had to be made between loyalty to an institution or loyalty to Jesus Christ and the faith once delivered to the saints, there was no choice for us. So I leave you with this question. Who left who? You know, we're accused of having left the Episcopal Church. But I would argue that we didn't really leave. We are standing where the church has stood for 2,000 years. We are standing where Anglicans have stood for hundreds of years. We actually believe what Thomas Cranmer put into the Book of Common Prayer in 1549 and 1552 and 1559. We actually believe what Latimer and Ridley ultimately died for when they were martyred out there in Oxford we believe in the doctrine of justification by grace through faith and that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life, and the only way to the Father. We actually believe what John Donne wrote in his beautiful sonnets, batter my heart, three-person God, thy power to break, burn, blow, and make me new. We actually believe what Wesley was all about, preaching the gospel to every man, every woman on the face of the earth. Why? Because without Jesus Christ, you perish we actually believe what Whitfield was all about, that it's not sectarian. The gospel is for every creature. We believe what Phillips Brooks believed as the great bishop of Massachusetts in the 20th century, a great bishop, the author of one of our great Christmas carols, O Little Town of Bethlehem. We actually believe what C.S. Lewis believed and Dorothy L. Sayers believed. And John Stott believed, and J.I. Packer believed, and what the Apostle Paul believed, and what the Apostle Peter believed. We actually believe those things. We actually believe and earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. That's what this is all about. And so some would ask, well, is it worth fighting, fighting a costly legal battle? I would say to you, it is worth fighting and laying down your life for. Because it's the only hope for the world. And that's what we're doing.
And God willing, we'll get a decision from the South Carolina Supreme Court and we'll be liberated from all of this and we can get on with the work of the gospel. But here at St. Philip's, that's all we're about. If anybody from the other side would suggest to you, well, you're just a bunch of homophobes, I ask you this question. I have been your rector for six years. It's hard to believe it's been six years, but it's been six years. And God has done an extraordinary thing in the life of this parish over the course of the past six years. And I ask you, from me or from any of the clergy, have you ever, ever once heard us address the issue of human sexuality from the pulpit? What have we been about for six years? We've been about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Folks, we didn't leave anything. We are standing where the church has stood for 2,000 years, contending for the faith once delivered to the saints because it is still the hope of a weary world. Questions? Well, thank you. So um, that sort of a crash course brings you up through the 20th century. Lots of factors contributing to this, but you get a sense of how there were all kinds of cultural forces that really began to play into what was happening to religion in America and what was happening right here. So um, as far as I'm concerned, Anglicanism uh, is still the greatest tradition within Christendom. And um, I think that's one of the things that is so amazing about what's happening at St. Philip's. You know, we're traditional. We, we are really the most traditional parish in the Diocese of South Carolina today. And there are those who look at us and they are, they are I'm going to be honest with you, they are baffled. There are people in our own diocese that are baffled by us. They can't believe that anything traditional actually works. And of course, it's not the tradition that works. It's the word of the Lord. When Jesus Christ is lifted up, he promises that he will draw all men to himself. And that's what we want to be about here at St. Philip's. That's what I want our reputation to be. I want people to say, if you want to encounter Jesus Christ, if you want to step through the wardrobe and encounter that one that C.S. Lewis called Aslan, but we know to be the Lion of Judah, then go to St. Philip's. And there, even in the midst of imperfect people and fallen clergy, you will meet the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And you'll discover joy and peace that surpasses understanding. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace and for your mercy. We know that the church is sometimes assailed, Lord, and that the assaults don't only come from the outside, they come from within. Your apostle wrote to his young friend Timothy and said, the time is coming when men will not put up with sound doctrine. They'll surround themselves with teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. But he encouraged Timothy to stand firm, to do the work of an evangelist, to fulfill his ministry. Grant us, Lord, not to become puffed up, arrogant, to remember that every good and perfect gift comes down from above. Whatever has happened here that is great over the course of the past several years, it's not because of the greatness of the clergy or the goodness of the people. It is because Jesus Christ in his mercy has laid his hand of blessing upon us. 
Grant us the grace to fear nothing then. Not the loss of buildings, not the loss of property, to fear nothing but the loss of you. And to give everything that we have, time, talent, and treasure, for the sake of him who gave everything for us, that the world and heaven itself might be our inheritance. Even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you very much. God bless you.